Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Here with a special episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy DM Prep. We're not actually prepping a game today. Instead, we are going to be doing a Frost Maiden retrospective. I finished my 10 month long 40 session Rhyme of the Frost Maiden game. And I wanted to spend an hour talking about how the game went, how the conclusion went, and give some general thoughts about Rhyme of the Frost Maiden and go from there. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. The patrons of Sly Flourish help me put on shows like this, as well as getting access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive uh, uncovered secrets that I put together, previews of videos that are coming out, and all sorts of great stuff. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much. So yeah, I two days ago, today's Tuesday, right? Sunday, I finished my Rhyme of the Frost, my Rhyme of the Frost Maiden game. And it was awesome. It was a really fun conclusion. Everybody was happy. It was a really good time. And I'm really glad that it all kind of came together. Some of the stuff that happened at the end was great. And we're going to talk all about it now. Before we begin, I thought it would be useful to start with my overall thoughts about running Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Right? I've been running it for 10 months now. I can now finally speak to having to the whole adventure because I've run the whole adventure at this point. And yes, I modified a lot of it. I think you kind of have to. I think you should and I think you kind of I think one should and I think one I think you kind of have to. But I still have a lot of thoughts about ways to get this going. I may do another video in which I go in depth chapter by chapter talking about all of the things that DMs can do to kind of squeeze the most out of this adventure. But I thought for this show tonight, I would cover the really big things that come to me when I think about running Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. If somebody said, as somebody who has run the entire campaign, what advice can I offer with the recognition that advice is BS? And really what I'm sharing are my own personal experiences and thoughts. What, what are those experiences and thoughts? So my, my first big one is that more so than just about any other hardcover D&D adventure, I had to do a lot of work to wrangle this adventure into something that I enjoyed and that my, that my, my, my players enjoyed. There's, it, it, there's a lot of rough spots and there's a lot of things that I felt like I really had to fix. I am, I'm not alone in that thought, but there are also many other points of view that aren't quite as strong as that. My friend, my friend Sam Dillon, who I talk to about this a lot in private and in public, we talk about it and we have very different views of this adventure. It's, I think it's a very, it can, there's a very divergent points of view about this adventure, but I know it took me a lot of work to get this adventure into a spot where I liked it. Now, part of that, and this, this came up in my conversation with Sam, is I kind of didn't like it the minute I opened the book, right? The minute I got it into my hands and the minute I opened it and started reading stuff from it, I was scratching my head or shaking it from side to side. There were parts of it that I just kind of didn't dig right when I looked at it. Things about the being too open-ended in chapter one, weird balance issues with monsters, the, the constant and continuing drive for Wizards of the Coast to make sure that players at first level die as horribly as possible and as fast as possible so that their audience doesn't grow too big too fast, right? Rhyme of the Frostmating continued on with the trend of throwing very, very hard monsters against low-level characters. And that bugged me right away. And when you get bothered by something like that, it kind of never lets go, right? Even throughout it. So if some people were cool with that or they didn't feel like they had those problems, I think, I think it might've been better. And like Sam read it and he loved it and he was into it. And he, both of us felt like it had to have a lot of work done to it, right? But he was a lot more interested and willing to do that work than I was. So 
my thought and advice is that it's you're you're, you're pro- you know don't be surprised if you end up having to do a lot of work yourself to get this adventure into a, into a manageable spot. So I probably spent 14 sessions running chapter one, and if you think about how chapter one is designed in the book, chapter one is intended to cover you from first to fourth level. And by the time you hit fourth level, you should be in chapter two. That's not a lot of time. That's really only three levels worth of stuff. First to second, second to third, third to fourth, and then you're done, right? And first to second level should be basically one adventure, right? So that's really, if you think about it, there are, I think I counted, about 13 or 14 quests that take place in chapter one. And by the time you finished about four of them, you should be on to chapter two. So that's a ton of content in one chapter that is not going to be used or by, by its design isn't going to be used. Now, of course, you can cut it down and say, well, you, you, you do a couple of quests a level, like maybe it's one quest to get to second level and then two quests from second to third and two quests to third to fourth. That's about five out of 13 quests, right? I think that's actually how the book plans it out. It's not a lot of stuff, right? And if you end up putting a lot of hooks in front of the characters, they're gonna eat those hooks. They're gonna bite on those hooks and they're gonna go off and they're gonna say, well, we had 12 quests and we didn't do it. So chapter one is really, really big. And I think it behooves a DM to say, cut half of the quests out right away. Just look at what quests are there, decide which ones you really like and throw half of them away and only put those half in front of the characters, right? And and if you if you the problem is if you put too many out, they're gonna wanna do them and they're either way over leveled or they uh, realize like they did, had to skip a lot of stuff. So that that's kind of my advice. And I think chapter one is the chapter I had the most problems with in this in this book. For chapter two, you, the, the chapter two is really just a bunch of locations. It doesn't have any sort of the adventure sinew that ties together locations into a cohesive story. There's no real good reason to go from one place to the other. There are places like the Cackling Chasm where you don't gain anything by going there and all you're gonna do is fight a bunch of gnolls and it's, you know, you're better off just not going, right? And many of the locations in chapter two don't serve any purpose and end up being places where you would have been better off if you never showed up in the first place, right? So you have to bring your own sinew to those locations. You have to decide what quests are you gonna put in front of people that take them to those locations, what information or keys can they get in those places that then unlock new places. And I did this and it actually worked out really well. That when when you add stuff like you cannot get to the Caves of Hunger unless you have a way to get through the Regged Glacier. And there are two potential ways to do this. One is you get the Summer Star as part of the Black Cabin quest, or two, you get the Horn of Blasting from the from the Frost Giant Jarl, the, the Frost Giant Throne, right? The, the Thrones of the Frost Giant Kings, I forget what it's called. Jarlmut, right? If you go to Jarlmut, you can do it. So those are two, like that way they have multiple ways they can do something, but you still wanna have some ways to do that. One, another one is like, you don't know how to get to Solstice. You know you need to get to this island. You hear about this island where the Frost Druids go and, and it's at that island where the spell that created the Endless Night exists, right? And you need to get to that island, but you don't know where it is or how to get there. So that, that information can be keys that you need to pick up. And then you might have to learn like, well, I need Angajuk's bell and the bell's missing. So now I gotta go somewhere to get the bell. And that can tie locations together so that the players will have reasons to go there. They will have accomplished things and they go there. You have to do that yourself for chapter two. So for 
So chapter three and four both cover the Duergar attack on 10 towns. One of them is a Sunblight, Sunblight Fortress, where Azardarok Sunblight, the head of the Duergar, exists. And then the other one is when the dragon, the Shardalon dragon, goes and attacks 10 towns. There's a bunch of things you can ignore in these chapters. One is the idea that when the characters first show up to Sunblight Fortress, they see the dragon flying to 10 towns, kind of throws that whole thing over. Like, why did they bother to go all the way to this fortress and now they got to turn around and go all the way back again, right? That's kind of a weak way to do it. The way I did it that I enjoyed is if they go to Sunblight Fortress, they crawl through Sunblight Fortress, and then while they're in there, they find out it got released, and then they face... Zardarok and Zardarok says, you know, you try, you came here to stop my evil plan, but ha, I launched it 30 minutes ago and now you're too late, right? That worked better when I ran it. The other trick is you need to have another entrance into Sunblight Fortress because the front door doesn't make any sense. By As it's written, they can get in through the front door and maybe your characters don't care, but anybody that's looking at the defenses of this fortress is not going to want to go in through the front door because like a Duergar with a snowball should be able to defend that front door pretty easily. Instead, they could get in through the Underdark. So in chapter four, there's all sorts of stuff about the timeline that the Shardalon dragon takes and how long it takes to destroy each town and how are you going to get there and all this other stuff. And you can kind of ignore all that and just decide, just decide yourself how far the dragon gets in destroying the towns. I had them destroy basically two or three towns by the, by the time the characters got there and stopped the rest. But you can sort of decide how much time you want it to take. Don't hang on to some kind of schedule. I don't think you really need to. And, and you could also skip chapter three and four completely and the adventure continues to work just fine. So it's up to you. One group I had in my Sunday group, they never went to Zardarox. They never went to Sunblight Fortress. They never bothered. And by the time they came back from Grimskull, having received the Codicil of the White, the dragon was attacking the towns as they arrived. They knew why, and they knew that they had not done the thing that might have helped save the towns, but they skipped it, and that worked fine. It was a nice sort of organic bit of, of things going on in the story, you know, a front that kind of moved forward when they were busy with other stuff. It worked out really well. For the next chapter, chapter five, when they go to Solstice, the island of Solstice, and they go to Grimskull, the fortress that where, where Oral is keeping the Codicil of the White, I really didn't like the idea of the trials, and I'm not the only one. This is something where Sam and I both agreed. And in, I replaced the trials with something that worked really well for me for both of the groups that I ran, that I ran it with. And the first thing I did is, I wasn't kidding about them, cough, coughing fit. So the first thing I did was I, I replaced the trials with specific trials that were tuned around the characters. So it kind of took the characters and their background and their backstories, and it built oral essentially, and, the, and the, the magic of this place, built a scenario where they had to give up the thing that they loved the most in order to pass the trial. Right. And in one group, my Sunday group, they realized that they had to do this and they made these these, they, they made these choices. And even though they were sort of illusory choices, they weren't real, right? It didn't really happen. It still was powerful. It changed their character when they made those choices, when they did those things. It changed their characters. And that really mattered to them. My other group basically went and took the trials and every time they were told to give up what they were, they gave the finger. And that meant that it pissed Oral off. And then Oral showed up and battled them in one of her forms, the, 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 the mother form, right? The crystal, the crystalline form. So that was kind of a cool way to do it too. One group said, no, we are, going to main, we are going to hold on to our ideals, even if it's going to be harder for us. And the other group said, we understand that we need to let go of our ideals if we're going to get through these trials. That was a really cool way to do it. And I really liked that way far better than the trials that are in the, in the adventure itself. 
And really, the, the, on the, 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 final, the final piece of advice I have is that you really need to tie together the, the tale of Oral and the tale of Grimskull and the tale of Yethrin and what exists beneath Yethrin into some kind of single cohesive story. Because in the adventure, it doesn't do so. There, you can actually end, in the book, you can end the Endless Night by killing a rock, right? A non-legendary single creature. You can banish it or kill it and she can't fly and therefore the night ends. I, I went with a different approach, which if you've watched my prep shows, you will have seen what my approach was, which is essentially I said that there were two things causing the endless night. One, a spell contained in the codicil of the white. In order to turn it off, you need to cast the spell and dispel it, right, with the spell in hand. But two, the spell is fueled by energy coming from Yethrin. The Mithalar in Yethrin is channeling energy into the spell, and you need to stop that energy to end the spell. Because if you end the spell on its own, that, that puts raw arcane energy into the environment, destroys everything, right? After time, it would be worse than the Endless Night. So you need both things. You need to be in the bottom of Yethrin with the spell in hand, shut the energy off and dispel the spell, and that ends the Endless Night, right? So I think that tying together Grimskull and Oral's plot and Yethrin all into one storyline gives you a really good conclusion to the adventure. And I found that to be the case with my adventure. So those are really the big pieces of advice that I have to offer when it comes to when it comes to running Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Those are those are the things. After having run it now for one group and being about three sessions away from running it for a second group, those are the things that I really that I really that I. Really, so now let's talk about what happened in the final session of my Rhyme of the Frost Maiden game. So the adventure started with Oral defeated. Oral had, the, the, the physical embodiment of Oral had possessed the, the Avarice, the wizard of the Arcane Brotherhood. And she had allied with the Knight's Kiss, a drow assassin group who had been hunting the party. There was a great big battle in the time before. They killed, they killed one of the members of the Knight's Kiss. The other one fled. They defeated Avarice and Avarice fell apart and she became the three forms of oral, one right after the other. And the characters then had to battle uh, the three forms of oral. They did so, they defeated them. I'm always kind of tweaking the stat block for oral. One of the problems, another one of the problems with this adventure is the stat blocks aren't great for a lot of the named NPCs. The stat block for the Shardalon Dragon is not legendary and not really that cool. The stat block for Tech Lili, the vampire, is also not really cool. And I think the stat blocks, all three of the oral stat blocks are not really well put together. They just have a lot of things. They don't play particularly well. They're very complicated and they're not very scary for a god, right? So, and I now have run oral many times, right? I've run all three of her forms three times. And I can say like, yeah, they're not really that great. And you have to do a lot. You know, throw more cones of cold and have her do more damage and you can kind of get there. So they defeated oral. So I started the last session. This is, I knew it was going to be the final session of the game. And one of the reasons I knew this, I, I knew I was going to condense everything down because I had all of the players there. I had six players that have been playing for the last 10 months, and I am not going to miss the opportunity to give them a good conclusion to this game when they're all there because likelihood of getting all six at any given game, pretty rare. And they were all there. So that meant that I skipped a lot of the tower. There's, 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 a, there's a central tower in Yethrin. There's a whole big map for it. And I threw almost all of that out. I had one NPC that I threw in there, which is the brain in the jar that's sitting atop the uh, Helmed Horror. I forget her name. But I had her. She was an interesting NPC that I, that I threw in there. And so I started off the session with the three gods that had thrown Oral out showing up and taking her remains and leaving. And the interesting bit there is some of the characters had taken trophies. So they had like a piece of Oral that they kept. But the rest of it, I, I kind of stole this from the ending of Time Bandits. 
the idea that Malar and Umberly and Talos show up in their own avatar forms and collect the shattered ice of Oral's form and put it into a an urn and then leave. Right. And I think somebody even like said something and like Malar looked at them and they had to roll like a stress effect check or become paralyzed. It was kind of fun. So I really dug that. And it was a fun conclusion, it kind of showed like she's a god and also says like, maybe she's coming back. What are they doing with that urn? Did they forgive her? What happened? Like, who knows? Like, who knows the whims of the gods, right? But she was gone. And so off she went. So then they said, okay, well, now we've got the three keys in hand. They reached level 10. So they, they, they had a whole extra level. They got a full rest. And I know what you're saying. Like, don't give characters a new level and a full rest right before a boss fight. That's what I did. Because they really want to use all their toys, right? They really want to use all their toys. So why not give them a chance to use all their toys? And they, they went in, I described how they were whooshed up into the central tower. They kind of went in there and they saw the, this big pillar of energy roaring up through that was the energy going into the, the spell. They knew that it went way down deep into the chambers below. So they, and then they met, what's her name? So then they met uh, Veneranda, former Nethery's archmage, now a brain in the jar, which is too cool, right? It's too cool not to have her. So I had her show up and she kind of talked about the fact, she, she gave a bunch of the secrets out on like who Father Lymac was and why he's doing what he's doing. Father Lymac is a villain that, I'm, that I ran in this, who's kind of the main villain in my, in my game. He is a caller for an elder evil called Thrun. Thrun is an elder evil trapped in an elven sarcophagus in the bottom of Yethrin that the Netheries had been channeling energy out of to fuel all their magic. But when Yethrin crashed after Neth the Netheries fell, it, the sarcophagus was cracked and basically formed Icewind Dale. All the frost of Icewind Dale was formed because of this cracked sarcophagus. And a, one of the elven, original elven protectors got corrupted by it and became essentially a lich that was the caller for, Father, for, for, for Thrun named Father Lymac, right? So Father Lymac was really my, my, main, my main villain in this, in, this, in this game. And he, so, so Veneranda explained to everybody who Father Lymac is and what he wants. He you know, really covered a lot of these secrets. You know, the, the, the three gods were there, Netherese, build a safeguard. Talked about the safeguard that was supposed to roll back time, which I thought would be a fun thing. It really taught a lot of stuff, right? And, and they kind of BS their way. So one of them had a mask that was one of the masks of one of the other Netherese lords. And he wore it <clears throat> and, and pretended to be that Netherese lord. And she's like, oh yeah, I had to become a brain in the jar. You've obviously taken over the body of some thrall and now you have these other thralls. And it was really fun for the characters to be like saying stuff. And she's like, why do you let your thralls talk like that? Like hit, hit him, hit him in the face. They're not supposed to speak like that. Right. And then, oh, no, actually, that's me speaking through his body. She's like, oh, that's really smart. Your personality switches different bodies. That's really smart. So they could each ask questions as though they were a Nethery's lord. And it was kind of fun. They learned about it. But really, my thing is like, get him into the battle, get him into the battle, because I know this battle is going to take a long time. Right. So I was like, we definitely want to have them get in there. And they did. Eventually, they got into the, they, they kind of passed her. She said, good luck. You know, here's what you need to do if you want to shut the off Father Limax thing, because frankly, this energy, she was like, I don't know, it's kind of fun. I think I'm going to watch the end of the world here pretty soon. So we'll see. But, you know, that Father Limax is, is nuts. So who knows what he's going to do? So then they went down to the sepulcher of, they went down to the sepulcher of Thrun. So for the sepulcher of Thrun, I took a map that is one of the uh, battle maps reincarnated available on D&D Beyond that some of the old Wizards of the Coast maps, and this is one that I really liked. I grabbed the coffin as a, a, a token and I stuck that in the center and then drew my own little cracks. And it made for a really good, 
area for the battle. And I ran the battle in three waves. I essentially said, I want to, I want to make this hard, but doable. And I recognize the fact that they are six 10th level characters fully rested. Right. And that is a lot of firepower for characters. So I'm like, I'm going to dump the kitchen sink on them. And I started off with eight wraiths, right? There was a bunch of wraiths that were draining life and swimming around. And I, I let them, they essentially were the remains of the Knights of the Black Sword, the elves who were originally intended to guard the sarcophagus of Thrun, who now have been corrupted and turned into wraiths. So eight wraiths is a lot. They're CR5, right? So eight CR5 wraiths is a lot of wraiths. And, but they only get one attack each, except they drain life if they hit you and you fail a saving throw. And that happened. One of the characters got hit twice and failed twice, and their hit points were like way low, right, right off the bat. But I had other characters who never got hit at all the whole battle. So like it was a little swingy in that direction. So they had eight wraiths. They were fighting some of them. They cast Turn Undead and got rid of half of them. And this is my idea about lightning rods, right? I talked about this idea of lightning rods. And the idea of lightning rods was... I wanted to put monsters and sets of monsters that were designed to eat some of the abilities that the characters were really good at. And so in one case, it's like big piles of undead are just asking for a turn undead. And it works really well when it works. And it's a great way to control. You're really thinking about what monsters am I going to put out here not to get defeated, but to get controlled, right? Because control is kind of a big thing. And it makes you feel better as a DM when it works like that. If I say I plan on wraiths getting turned, and then they do. You're like, hey, I, it worked out, right? Maybe you're planning a little too much. Maybe that's hanging on a little too tight. And, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. But it, but it worked, right? In that case, they, they managed to defeat four of the wraiths in combat. The other four were hit with turn of dead and fled, and they never came back. And that worked really well, even though wraiths are really dangerous. And then Father Limac opens up these portals, and these twisted abominations from the far realm come out of the portals. In this case, they were sham. I just used shambling mounds. Shambling mounds are also big engulfing creatures. They poured out, I had, I had some cool kind of tokens for them. Let's see if I can find my token. Yeah, so I just used the regular shambling mound, shambling mound tokens, right? And I had like four of these guys that popped out and, and attacked. And they were designed, you know, like you're going to have to pay attention to them. You're going to have to throw damage on them. They have a lot of hit points. They engulf, they hit hard. But again, like if you hit them with a, you know, if you manage to hit a couple, they were separated out so you could only hit them in groups you know, groups of two. But if you hit him with a hypnotic pattern and got rid of two of them, that'd be a really good thing to do. But now you got to concentrate on that and keep those guys out of the way while you got these other two you're fighting. Meanwhile, sitting at the at the at the at the altar is Father Limac himself. And I, and Father Limac had a couple of things that I really like, which is swords, these swords of annihilation, right? He had two of these swords that were just floating nearby because he's a knight of the black sword. These are his black swords, right? And they were like these, you know, but he was, I had, I, I kind of did the BS thing that he was surrounded by a protective shell and that the shell that was impermeable as long as he wanted it to be. And that eventually he would say, okay, time for me to get involved. And he would jump in there. But I thought for the meantime, I'm just going to put a shell protection. They cannot hit Father Limec. So they can't nuke him while all this other stuff is there it's going to be a waved fight and i think i even had joked i'm like he's like you know they, they would throw a spell at him and it would hit the wall and he's like you're gonna to have to defeat waves one and two before you can get to me and they're like ah oh. so it was a little like metagamey kind of fun thing but you know what are you gonna do right it's still it was, it was kind of fun and it worked out so they had these four big shambling mounds but then i said there's another creature coming and it's awful and it's bigger. It's four times bigger than these guys. And I brought it out and here's a cool token for it. And for this one, I called it the Hulk of Thrun, 
right? And I think I gave it like a 15 foot size or 20 foot size. It made it really big and it came out of the portal. And the Hulk of Thrun was a star spawn, uh, what is it called? Star spawn mangler? No. Star spawn Hulk, right? CR 10, star spawn Hulk. Hits like a freight train, tons of hit points. Very, very dangerous, powerful thing. I was gonna use like a fire giant and just reskin a fire giant and say this thing is. And it is a lightning rod for banish, right? That this creature was intended to be banished, right? And, and the goal there was you're already fighting these other things. You still know that Father Lymic is on the way. And you got, and, oh my God, what is that? And that's like, you, you're not going to go run up and fight that thing, right? You can, but it's going to punch you for 52 points of damage, right? And it's got like 200 hit points. How about instead, we just cast a spell on it. It's charisma is minus two and has no legendary resistance. It's designed to be banished, right? And it worked, right? So eventually one of the players said, I think I'm going to banish that. And all the other players like, please, please, for the love of God, banish that thing. And he did, and he banished it. And they're like, okay, protect him now. So this is, it really had this fun kind of, tactically they they had lots of things they wanted to do so they banished that they defeated these guys and then father limac drops it and now the swords of annihilation are starting to kill things and lots of fun stuff ilda is summoning flumps she's got a thing where she's like every round she's throwing out a new weird ass thing from her wild magic barbarian thing and she was like summoning flumps and the flumps are like why did you bring me to this terrible place and the sword of annihilation would come and kill a flump there was the the yeah merrick said and i expected you to say and the players never banished it that is a possibility right but sometimes if you you don't put it out there unless you know they already use it, right? Like I've played with these people for a while and they banish stuff, right? Like banish is not outside of their wheelhouse. So I knew they were ready to banish things. And so then you really say like, you know, big banish me sign on the front, right? And yeah, so somebody said she murdered fart monsters. Yeah, and it was very funny because I had to come out and I was like, when they show up, they go like toot toot, right? And they're like, woo, right? And then and then like he would like cut it open with the with the the sword of doom and they go like <laughs> all these like multicolored bits of gas would come out of it with its two accusatory eyes looking at the person who summoned it. Like, why did you bring me to this terrible place? So that was really fun. And the Hound of Ill Omen, so the Paladin or the Shadowhawk, our sorcerer, cast a Hound of Ill Omen, which went after Father Lymic, and that ate up his sword attacks, right? He used his Sword of Annihilations like multiple times to get rid of that stupid hound. He hated it, right? And so that worked really well. For Father Lymac himself, because I had thrown so much stuff at the characters, I didn't use a lot of his legendary actions because I didn't need to, right? Like he could use them if I wanted to. And on occasion I'd throw them out there, but I didn't just like use them every time. For him, I used the stat block for the Lycan Lich. So I used the stat block for the Lycan Lich, which comes from Candlekeep Mysteries. And it worked really well. The interesting thing is he's got this four attacks. He's got four poisonous touches or four withers that he can do on his turn, which is a lot of damage he can do. So I had him do that, like the Hound of Ill Omen, he fired like, four withers right on it, right? For, for you know, whatever, 52 points of necrotic damage or whatever it was, 56 points of necrotic damage. But I never really needed him to do his legendary attacks. And also the problem I had is at this point, we were, we were hitting time, right? This was two hours before they even got to him. And I'm like, I, you know, like, Somebody, one of the players is like, you know, I can stick around. I, I asked, like when early on, I said, is there any chance you guys could stick around like another, you know, after the regular time we end? And they said, yes. Uh, everybody said, oh yeah, absolutely. But one guy was like, yeah, I can like 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, cool. All right. So I really like, I got to get this out, which meant like, it was cool because it's like, you don't, you know, he doesn't have to be tough. He already threw out like 15 dudes, right? So getting to him, you just want the satisfaction of them killing Father Lymac. And they did. 
and Ilda got the killing blow and it was awesome, right? And everybody cheered and everybody was awesome. And then it was like, okay, cast a spell. And oh my God, then the most stressful part. So at that point, the battle was over. So how'd the boss fight go? It was fine. I would say on a one to five scale, I would give it a four. I wouldn't give it a five. It's not the best boss fight I've ever run. It was a little procedural, right? It was a little like wave after wave of months. It was very World of Warcraft-like, which is kind of how I designed it, like a, a raid in World of Warcraft. And I feel, I mean, a lot of crazy stuff happened. I think the players probably just were all happy because they got to use everything they've got. Nobody died during the battle, but they were definitely getting, they were definitely worried. One thing is, <laughs> that I thought was hysterical, Gore, who casts Blink in every battle he's ever used, failed to blink five rounds in a row. All right. He roll, was rolling to blink and never blinked. And I kept saying that every time he tried to blink, Father Limac looked at him and said, you're staying here. And, and all I was doing was narrating why he was rolling terrible rolls. But he knew, like, I'm just rolling two, three, two, two, three on his blinks. He never blinked out. But I don't think he ever got hit either. So I didn't think it mattered too much. So I think the battle went well. So then the battle's over. And they say, we know we can cast a spell to turn off the Endless Night, which is great. But now we got to seal the sarcophagus. And I was like, they know that they're, they said like, the only way to seal it, one of you has to die. And they're like, and then all of them, I knew this was going to happen. All of them are fighting over each other to get to be the, the one to go sacrifice themselves to seal the coffin. But then they said, what if we do it all together? And I was like, oh, I didn't plan on that. And I said, if you all channel your energy together, you have a chance that you won't die. Each of you will have to roll a DC 16 constitution saving throw and fail results in your permanent death. And they're like, wow. And they're like, well, I used my inspiration already. So I'm out of inspiration. And they're like, well, what about bless? I'm like, yeah, bless will work. So Gore came over and cast bless on them. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, these are going to be like the most severe rolls of the game in the last thing that happens in the game. And they rolled and like Auken... What happened? Auken, somebody rolled really terribly and then realized they still had inspiration and then rolled it again and got it. But they were really close to permanent death, but they all made it. All three of them succeeded and all three of them managed to channel the blood of Thrun into the sarcophagus, seal the crack, seal it up and live, right? And at that point, they cast a spell, they sealed it off, the energy went away and the endless night ended. And that was really cool. And then I said, oh, one other thing they noticed is that the portal that they had drawn all of this stuff out of changed. And they looked through the portal and said, well, there's like green pastures and like the lakes are there and the lakes look like the lakes to 10 towns, right? Like it looked, that's, that's Icewind Dale, but it's green. And like, is that now? And they're like, no, that's the past. That's the ancient past. That is long ago. Like that's a long time ago. And they're like, we could go back in time and change things, right? And they're like, yeah, we could. And this is one of the things I really liked about the adventure is this idea that there is a way to essentially get teleported back 2,000 years before all this stuff happened and, and be there during the time of the Netherese, right? And they, but I didn't like the idea that that would happen accidentally. I thought that that would be an anti, that would be anticlimactic for the end of a, campaign and instead it would be interesting if they had a way to do it and potentially some reasons to do it and then could make a choice whether they wanted to do it or not i wanted to give the players the agency to choose what they do and that worked out really great so in the end i said okay what happens and Perrin said i'm going through the portal i'm going to go back there and i'm going to try to fix some stuff and most of all what i can fix is i can make sure my brother doesn't get kidnapped by the mind flayers and doesn't get turned into one and it will take me you know, I'll have to like write a note that lasts 2000 years, but I might be able to do that. Right. I can, I can. And then he's like, 
am I my own great, 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 great grandfather? I'm like, maybe, right? Who knows? So then I said, okay, one year passes, right? It's one year since the day you sealed up the sarcophagus of Thrun and have returned out of Yethrin and returned to Icewind Dale. I missed an opportunity, which just makes me very sad, for them to come out from the caves of, of the Regga Glacier and see the sun shining down on Icewind Dale and to look and see animals all looking up at the sun and to see like ragged tribe, you know, ragged barbarian tribes looking up like they haven't seen the sun pulling their hoods back, right? And the first time that snow is beginning to melt in the area. I missed that chance and it makes me sad, but time was tight and I wanted to hand the story over to the characters, so we did. But that's why I'm glad I'm running it again for my other group because I can make sure to do that because it's really important. So here's how it turned out. Because their story, I tell you, if I can offer, I offer a lot of advice for games, obviously. That's my, that's my racket. But one thing that has worked really well is handing the story over to the players in the final scene of the game and letting them talk about where their characters end up one year later. I've done this for this particular group like four or five times. And every time... I am blown away by how awesome the stories are. The stories are outstanding and they were as outstanding today as they were in any other time we've done it. So a year later, Perrin had been using his survival skills. So he ended up in minus 200 Dale Reckoning, 2200 years before all this occurred, right? And Perrin being a ranger and kind of being an isolationist anyway, survived very well in the temperate realms of Icewind Dale and you know used his survival instincts to survive and kind of built his own sort of generational empire. You know, he wanted to make sure to save his brother and his father by, by passing information along through the ages to help prevent them from doing this and became his own multi-generational grandfather, right? And his story kind of came up in the other people's stories as we went of like, you know, how things went. Gorwen Alcazar, you know, that when Alcazar made it big in the north and he continued to focus on capitalizing his success and reaching out to the Grey Father, the, the Grey Castle family, his secret family. And he kept using, he kind of, it, it expanded beyond Icewind Dale to the other cities of the north. But he was always worried about losing it because of that trial that he took with Oral. He's always talking to his mom and dad who are actually characters from Waterdeep Dragon Ice. He was, you know, talking to them and worried about like, am we, you know, is it gonna, how is it gonna, am I gonna lose everything? Like, am I gonna lose my family name? Am I gonna lose my fortune? Am I gonna lose, because the, the fortune, the, because the trial, that's exactly what happened, right? And he was always worried about that. Very dark, every one of these had sort of a dark twinge to the ending, which was cool and fits the theme of the adventure, but it was a little surprising too, right? Uh, Candle, can, uh, I wanna, I'm gonna save, I'm gonna save. Actually, no, we'll, we'll do Candles. So Candle never returned to Ten Towns again. He traveled back to Waterdeep, right? So Candle's arc was he was a happy-go-lucky tabaxi rogue who fled with his family to Icewind Dale to avoid being killed by assassins who were sent by the Xanathar, the beholder who rules over the, the, under, the, under, you know, the underworld of Waterdeep in Skullport. And they had done something right bad and they were on the run. And an assassin came and hunted around. They, uh, Candle and the rest of the group killed the assassin and protected his family. But then he realized like, I really need to protect this whole place. And he gave up his life to do so by drinking the blood of an elder evil. And when he drank an elder evil's blood, he died and became a dampier. And once he became a dampier, Candle was different. Things that he cared about, he threw aside and broke our hearts. Like as, as, as a DM, right? It broke my heart. There was, there was one aspect where he had been cultivating this Remoraz egg, 
I, that was another thing I missed. You, you miss you miss threads sometimes. He was cultivating a, a remoraz egg that he picked up, and he had a name for it, and he pet it, and he like warmed it by the fire, and he talked to it. And after that, he, I said like, you feel the egg moving in a bag, and he's like, I take it out and I throw it in the corner of the room, and everyone's like, oh my god, right? Like, he loved that thing for so long. He's like, that was candle, and candle's gone, right? And everyone's like, oh, brutal. So in his ending, he returns to Waterdeep. He goes to the Xanathar's lair, sneaks into the Xanathar's lair, finds Silgar, the Xanathar's goldfish, kills it and flays it open and leaves it for the Xanathar and puts out a note that says, I'm coming for you, signed Candle in the Dark to the Xanathar. And everyone's like, what? All right. Aachen, the Goliath, ends up running the Wan Alcazar Mercenary. His wasn't so bad. Runs the uh, Wan Alcazar Mercenary uh, Company for part of Wan Alcazar and Associates and runs their security units and also continued to run the Museum and Historical Society for Perrin Fat Rabbit and in his generations. So, you know, he was the one that was sort of on the receiving end of the 2200 year history of the character who ended up going back in time. Awesome. Nice, fun, back to the future stuff, right? Shadowhawks also his his ending was very surprising. So Shadowhawks arc was that he ran away from House Zalaran and Menzo Baranzin because of some slight he did there. He was being hunted by the the matrons of House Zalaran and they sent the assassins called the Knights Kiss to go find him. During his travels, he ended up becoming a half mind flayer. He had a mind flayer symbiote in his head and gained was slowly gaining mind flayer powers and stuff. And the Knights Kiss found this out and said he is far more useful alive, brought back to Menzo Branson so we can dissect him and learn how we can add psionic power to our drow, our, 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 our drow people, right? Our, our drow soldiers. So we want to capture him and bring him back. But they, they killed the Knight's Kiss. And his answer was, I'm going back to Menzo Branson and I'm going to reunite with the family. And he did. He went back to Menzo Branson. He went back to House of Lauren and he said, I'm, I'm back. And they said, you know what? We think you might be far more useful to us alive than you would be flayed open on a, on a stone slab. And we think that there's a lot you can do for us. And so now he is sort of a consigliere in House Zalaren as a half mind flayer. Really cool, right? Really cool ending. Then we come to Ilda, right? So Ilda had probably one of the deepest stories of the characters in the game. Ilda was a half Goliath, half elf, who's sort of, her mother was her biological mother, but her father was not. And both of them were cult members of the cult of Oral, rich members of the cult of Oral. They were based on the on the uh, the Malfoys from 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 Harry Potter, and so she spent most of her life like under the thumb of this crazy cult, and then left and, and joined the Goliaths for a while, and grew up and became and then went back and realized how crazy her family was and killed them. But she brought up that she never recovered from that, right? She never got over the fact that she was part of this call. She killed, she killed her own father in the middle of the street, right? She still had a connection to her mother, but she kind of fell into debauchery. She sort of went from place to place and she you know, went to Neverwinter. She became a pirate. She was in Luskin. She was all in these different places, kind of jumping around from place to place. And she never really recovered from that and, you know, and ended up kind of like, you know, breaks the heart of many, many, many women. She, you know, the many of the women that she dated, she broke their hearts. And then she was in one big, she ended in a big party at Waterdeep, right? She ended up in Waterdeep and ended up a big party. And that was one point where I said, I need, I'm going to jump in. And I said, you're at this party, right? And all these people are around and they're all on God knows what kind of substance. And this guy that you don't particularly like 
is there. And he says, hey, I'm going to go out for a minute. I'm going to go get something. And he starts walking out and you hear some kind of electrical crack and dust comes flying in as he is disintegrated right at the door. And then you see a shadow of a great big sphere moving in and it moves in and you see these tentacles on it and this blue and gold beholder comes floating into your den of debauchery and it focuses all 10 eyes on you as the Xanathar, right? The Xanathar's 10 eyes are focused on Ilda and says to Ilda, where's Candle? And that's where we ended, that's where we ended the campaign. So normally I would not jump in like that. But it felt so right and it felt cool to end on a cliffhanger like that, right? Like it, it was so different from the rest of the campaign. It clearly, I mean, they all like, you know, all I heard on the other end of my Discord call was people screaming, right? And it was like, it was a really cool ending. It was a really cool dark ending, cliffhanger ending. Does Hilda survive? Like what happens? Right. And opens up a whole other story, right? It's, you could totally see like the Xanathar must die as a short run campaign, high level, you know, five years have passed. The characters are getting back together and they're all trying to figure out like, we've got to go rescue Candle or we want to help Candle kill the Xanathar or something, right? You could have a lot of cool stuff. New characters. Some characters are dead. Some characters are brand new. Some characters are have aged, you know, all kinds of cool stuff like that. But I think it might be cool if we just leave that in our heads, right? I don't know that running it has to happen. This is one of those things where sometimes the blanks are more fun than what we fill it with, right? And I think this might be a blank best left unfilled. I don't know. So a candle behind you, roll initiative. So, but I, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure like they would totally love it if we did that. But, you know, we, like we've talked about this with a lot of different campaigns too. And I think it might be just fun I think it might just be fun to, to leave to leave that aside. So that was a really, really fun ending. And I, I loved it, right? I loved, I loved that ending. I, I did some counting today and realized that this was the end of my 18th campaign that I've run in 5th edition that I actually completed, where I've actually gone through an entire campaign and had a campaign from the beginning to end. And of all of the things that I've done in this crazy industry, all the, you know, writing books and, and, and making videos and making tips and all this stuff. And I'm very, very proud of the work that I, that I do, right? I'm, I'm very happy with it. I'm very proud of it. And I'm, it makes me, it fills me with joy every time that I'm able to make make something people like and make something that helps people play the game. But I'm also really, really proud of having run that many campaigns because I don't think there's a lot of people who have that opportunity. And, and it's one thing to like run a year long campaign and have players there and have the story and have a complete arc. And I managed to do it 19 times, right? We will be soon, like three episodes away from 19 times. This was my, this was my 18th, right? And my 19th will be when my other group finishes out. And that is just... You know, I'm really, really proud of that because it's hard, right? It's really the number one problem in D&D is getting people together regularly to play. It's hard. And I've managed, I'm really lucky that I managed to do it. It's because like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to be able to do it, right? I've got a lot of advantages in my life. A lot of luck that has put me in the position where I can, where I have that kind of opportunity. And it was really, really fun. And I really loved this one too. I really enjoyed it. The campaign, the campaign was really fun. The characters were great. Like when I think about these characters and think about their arcs and think about where they went and the, and the, the funny stuff that happened in the game, we're going to tell stories about this, you know, the rest of our lives, right? It's, it's been really, really great. 
And so I've bagged, I've bagged on this adventure a lot. I've been bagging on it for like 10 months and I don't discount <laughs> me bagging on this adventure. But I also recognize that like, you, you think about it and it's like you pay, you pay 50 bucks for a book like this, right? And we ran 40 sessions, three hours each, right? That's 120 hours of entertainment for roughly four to five, you know, five to seven people. That's a lot of hours of happiness for that, for that 50 bucks, right? And I actually ran it for two different groups so you can double that amount of time, 300 some hours of time. And, and we get so much from it, right? And I'm just, I'm really happy that this worked out the way it did. I'm really happy with how the campaign ended. I'm very happy with, I like the choices that they made in these past few past few sessions where they decided that instead of hunting down the keys, they were gonna go just wait for the keys to come to them because they knew the other group was gonna get them. That was like so smart and I was really happy with it. And that said, I'm pretty happy it's done, <laughs> right? Like I'm eager, I'm eager for our next stuff. I don't expect that like the next couple things I run are gonna be as epic as that. And I don't know what we've got planned after that. So like my next big plans are to run a few sessions of Blades in the Dark right and i'm going to run and then hopefully a few a few more sessions like like i don't know how many six or eight sessions might be nice of numenera uh, i'm really eager to, I, i'm surrounded by numenera stuff and i'd love to run more numenera and my 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 players are behind it they they came to me saying wouldn't it be fun to play some other stuff and i was like yeah absolutely let's do that and then we'll probably get back to dnd &D. i don't know what's coming i don't know if we'll go to witchlight we might my other group is going to play witchlight i've already started my witchlight prep and I'm eager to play Witchlight. I like, so unlike Frostmaiden, where I opened it up and didn't dig it right away, Witchlight I open up and I like a lot. But there's also an angle to Witchlight that I want to take that I'm very excited about as well. And unlike Frostmaiden, I don't feel like I have to fix things to do it. I just see it, I see an opportunity and I want to take it. And my secret, I'll share this. And if you're in my Witchlight game, you don't want to listen to this. My secret angle is that I want to take the planes, the, the, the far, or not the far realm, the Feywild. And imagine the Feywild is a disc, right? Floating in like the astral sea, that there's this disc that's the, far, the Feywild. And then imagine that on another angle, on another trajectory is another disc, which are the domains of dread. And the domains of dread, because of like weird stuff, they've kind of broken out of their normal cycles. And the domains of dread begin to slice into the far realm or I keep on the far realm. The domains of dread start to slice into the Feywild. And what that means is when you're in the Feywild, every so often there are these dreadful incursions that occur where parts of the domains of dread show up. It might just be like a monument. It might be a rift. It might be something else. And now there's an angle of pure unbridled opportunities for combat in a game that doesn't necessarily have it. And I think that will be fine. Like it's one thing to like, you know, what kind of, you know, fighting, you're not gonna wanna fight a bunch of like bandit children, right? But if a night crawler, you know, if, if, if like these weird, you know, Nosferatu crashes your teddy bear picnic, you're gonna fight that Nosferatu. So that way there's an opportunity for combat, right? And I'll play by ear. I, I, I like running combat, right? And I, I don't wanna, I, I, dig, I dig the idea of making an adventure that doesn't need combat anywhere in it. I don't know if I wanna run a long campaign where there's not a single battle, right? I don't know if I wanna do that. And I also don't want players to feel like they failed if they did get into a battle, right? So I wanna say, like a lightning rod, here's your chance. You know, you're not going to feel bad about killing a bunch of crawling claws or a handful of zombies or a big zombie ogre that crawled out of this weird well that seems to be an incursion from some strange place. And plus it lets me use the 40 domains that are in the domains of dread. 
right? And then that are in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So I'm, I'm taking Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and I'm taking Wilds Beyond the Witchlight and I'm keeping them next to one another and I'm using both. And I think that that will be really fun. So I'm eager to do that too. So I've got lots of different fun things on the horizon, but I really, really loved how my Frost Maiden game came up. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me tonight. If you like this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. It was a really fun time. And this kind of ends my whole Frost Maiden run. I think this is the 42nd video I've done just on Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you all for hanging out with me while I've been going through this adventure. It's been great fun to do. And I will see you while we do the next, while we do the next show and we start playing the next game. In the meantime, have a wonderful night, have a wonderful day and get out there and play some D&D. Thank you very much.